You're tuned into Made for Mondays with Justin Lester. Justin Lester is an average guy who refuses to let Mondays control him. Justin is a husband, dad, pastor, student, and Jesus follower. He's done a lot. He's learned a lot. And he wants to see you at your best. Let's win Mondays. Hey, Justin, what's up today? Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to Made for Mondays today. Today, we're blessed to have a very special guest and Saul Kaplan from Business Innovation Factory as we discuss being, identity, healthcare, and innovation in the midst of all of this crisis going on in our country. We pray that this will bless you and enrich everything inside of you to be the person that God has called you to be. Now, this conversation was recorded on Zoom, so the audio quality is not perfect, but the content is great for you. Now, let's jump into our conversation today. Well, hey everyone, Justin here. So I'm so excited to welcome today, uh, Mr. Saul Kaplan. Now, Mr. Saul is um, my my wife's boss, uh, but before that, I knew about him and heard about you and learned a lot about you from the, I think it was the the Storytellers Conference and things like that you guys did at BIF. My wife had seen it just a long time ago and just talked constantly about how much of an amazing leader you are. And so I was really happy to meet you, um, whether it's in this capacity or another one. And so I'm really happy to welcome to talk about in our first leg of Family Matters, uh, Mr. Saul Kaplan from Business Innovation Factory. Welcome, Saul. Well, great to be with you, Justin. Let me just first say how much I love working uh, with Courtney. Um, it, it's been fantastic to have her on the team. Of course, she joins us right as the COVID-19 crisis uh, is on us. And thank goodness, because uh, she's, uh, she's been great. Uh, I'm also really impressed with the work you're doing at Conyers Street Baptist Church. Oh, thank you. Everything I hear, everything I see, I mean, you really got it going on. It's uh, <laughs> worth learning from you, my friend. Oh, thank you. And I'm not going to lie, the, um, the, the pick the BIF and you have in the background and the storytellers, uh, we were going to have our first storytellers conference this year at our church. Um, and we <laughs> literally, my wife was just enamored with the first time she saw and heard about it. And so I'm not going to lie, we we're going to copy it. And she absolutely loves, um, just everything with it. And I'm, I'm happy that she's there. I'm happy she's happy uh, working with the business innovation factory. <laughs> So, Saul, the reason I had you on here, um, so our congregation um, and the people that I lead, um, we are, we're growing, and what's awesome, we have six generations, a part of our congregation, um, and so we go, our oldest number, I think, is 94, 95, um, all the way down to, we had a newborn a couple weeks ago, she's part of Luna U, um, had a newborn a couple weeks ago, and so we have babies all the way to seniors, um, and in the midst of all of that, we have a lot of students, millennials, Gen X, boomers, and all of that. And what I notice in our community and our culture in general is that there seems to be a divide between, whether it's cultural, whatever it is, um, just between baby boomers and millennials. And as I saw a lot of the things that you were writing about in terms of living life after COVID-19, um, what it means to even see what's going on with seniors in nursing homes now, as the son of a millennial parent, um, my, my wife is the daughter of a millennial, I'm, I'm a boomer parent, my wife is the daughter of a boomer parent, um, I'm trying to see how we can restore this. And one of the first places I think is looking at healthcare. And when I saw your care for it, um, I wanted to approach that today. And so I guess, first of all, why is this topic in terms of healthcare for baby boomers even now, even when you mentioned professors, we'll get to that later, but like baby boomers now and looking towards the future, why is that so important for us to address in the midst of COVID-19 and anticipating the future? Yeah, well, I mean, it's always been important. Uh, and as, uh, as uh, it gets personal you know, for me, as I age, 
Yeah. Uh, both my wife and I in our early 60s, so we're right, uh, right in the boomer uh, generation. So uh, we, have a, we have a vested interest uh, in, uh, in aging and watching it. We also uh, have one remaining parent uh, living. Uh, we're very fortunate. Uh, my wife's mom lives around the corner from us here in Rhode Island. Yeah. She's about to be 90. Wow. Uh, and so, of course, uh, it's a blessing to be living nearby and to be close. So uh, not six generations, that's impressive, uh, <laughs> congregation, uh, but four generations, right? A great wow. mother, you know, uh, we're grandparents. My daughter uh, lives around the corner and she mm -hmm. has three granddaughters. Wow. So we have four generations that were really fortunate, you know, to be close and to be interacting uh, with each other. So I really find the intergenerational and the connection between and amongst generations to be really interesting. And that was before COVID-19 hit. Mm -hmm. When it hit, uh, everything you know, took on a whole new perspective, you know, around generations uh, and around health. Uh, and so we can dive into that a little bit more. Uh, you know, it started um, primarily uh, with our mom, you know, who will be 90, who everything we heard and began to see as the crisis hit uh, were the most at risk. Uh, and so a lot of it became every day, how do we make sure that we're protecting her? How do we make sure that we're rallying around her? Uh, the idea of her becoming more and more isolated in the context of COVID-19, you know, really concerned us. So how do we, how do we keep her health central uh, in our thinking? But then it also translates down to you know, each generation. You know, for us in our 60s, you know, the, a lot of talk about us being uh, more at risk uh, mm -hmm. than generations who came after us. Yeah. So how do we look after ourselves uh, and how do we all support each other? So how do the younger generations, you know, actually rally around each generation and, and not get into this trap of you know, each generation for itself, which is just wrong on so many dimensions. Yeah. So I'm interested in all of it and you can unbundle it. Uh, and we're still learning uh, every day and all COVID-19 did is amplify it, uh, yeah. make it more urgent and make us a little more reflective yeah. uh, about those relationships. So what would you say to, so I want to get to what would we say to what we could say to millennials, but what would you say to your own generation? So your, your, your the same the people in your age group about like you talk about just about care, like being open to the conversation. I, I forgot about I didn't even think about the fact that, yes, uh, we could have you would have parents that would be still living or could still be living that would be so at risk for. But what would you say to um, people in your age group in terms of engaging with this conversation on healthcare before not just it gets too late, but. I, I, one of the rules I have in my church is I will never do a GoFundMe funeral. I just won't. And uh, we will not just fund a funeral at the end. And, and it's unfortunate we've had situations where we've had to go into our own pocket at the church and, and fund things because we didn't prepare. But I, I want to think way before funerals and just care, self-care, mental care, relational care, all of that. How, what would be something you could say to boomers in terms of um, opening up these type of conversations with either children or people the same age as them? I think it starts with just having this intergenerational perspective, right? Mm -hmm. 
uh, so the first thing, I mean, what we always say at BIF is one of our core principles is let's catalyze something that's bigger than any of us, yeah. right? So, you know, have a lens that you're not thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about your generation. You're thinking about mm -hmm. those around you. So, as I said, the first uh, inclination for us was if, we're, if you're lucky enough to still have parents you know, that are living, yeah. right, let's, let's first be in service of them. Right yeah. before I ever started thinking about my own health, mm -hmm. you know, well, this crisis, mm -hmm. right, or thinking about aging, and we'll come back to boomers and yeah. aging, and yeah. aging in place, right? The, we started hearing those stories about the risk of the elder community, yeah. right, and then it got worse and worse, and still the stories I hear today that about the, in nursing homes, yeah. you know. We, we, Elder individuals that are in congregate care, yeah. which by definition means they're in close contact with lots yeah. of other people, you yeah. know, in these closed environments, right? The uh, the numbers are uh, are alarming, mildly yeah, uh, of what's been happening uh, in this environment. So we were very fortunate, right? Our mom lives in at home. She lives. Mm -hmm. she is in place. We had to make some accommodations to that, and we're fortunate to live around the corner, mm -hmm. uh, and be very attentive, you know, and to visit with her a lot. Yeah. This this generation is really vulnerable, you know, to loneliness and isolation. Yeah. And the medical research is very clear about the health consequences of loneliness and yeah. being isolated that yeah. only is made worse in this crisis. Yeah. And so we started thinking about the, that generation and what could we do? How can yeah. we make sure you know, that we were staying connected, we were staying engaged? You know, in our mom's case, she's not, you know, on the, she's not doing Zoom calls. Yeah. Right. You know, so yeah. to be able to stay connected, we had lots of doorstep visits, right? Wow. We were comfortable. We were very cautious about who we were going to to have be in contact with her. Yeah. You know, all the warnings you know, that we said, but we wanted to make sure we were we were really working on that isolation aspect yeah. of of being elderly. And then all of a sudden, it started to come down to our own generation, yeah. right? Because now we to hear about ways we're going to open up our communities and our economy again. So you hear lots of stories about yeah. you know, who's safe, who's, who, who can start to interact in constrained, yeah. limited ways with other folks. But there's always a caveat you know, at the end of that, right? When we hear from our leaders you know, that yeah. says, if you have underlying conditions, or you are elderly, you know, and we hear lots of different definitions about what that means, That's but true. it starts pretty close to home, yeah. right? When you start to hear rhetoric that says, we young people can go back into the yeah. community, right? Yeah. And you old people, you know, yeah. have got to remain isolated. And yeah. then when you tie it back to the health consequences of isolation, you start to get concerned. So yeah. I, I think, first and most important thing here is to be cognizant of this, to have empathy for that, right? Yeah. To pay extra close attention, you know, to your friends and your family, right? To be sensitive to people, you know, that I know you were in a hurry to get back to work and I yeah. understand that, but yeah. let's have a little bit of empathy for those that might be more at risk, yeah. right? And 
includes many boomers, yeah. right? That as the world starts to get back and recover, which is great, yeah. right? How do, how do we remain empathetic to and connected to people that are feeling more and more isolated in order yeah. to protect their own well-being? Really wow. important. And not, not a technically hard thing to do, yeah. right? We don't need to invent anything. We just need to be more human and pay attention to those relationships. That's so true. There's a, there, I was reading something that the, the, the grace of humanness, right? The, just the, the, the importance of seeing grace, extending grace, being a grace-filled person um, in terms of un, understanding and owning our own humanity. And I guess that even speaks to like the next question I was going to ask for you then. So um, that generational divide when it comes to, so for example, in Florida, when this all first hit, the first thing that happened was, okay, so a whole generation, Gen Z, not millennials, Gen Z, <laughs> but these, these 24, 24 to, whatchamacallit, down to 18-year-olds are running to the beach for their spring break, or these 16-year-olds are running to the beach for their spring break. And it puts others at risk. Um, and then all of a sudden, when millennials did start getting hit, and Gen Z did start getting hit with COVID, um, then it was, oh my gosh, like it is a young person's disease too. It's, it's a virus too. It's not just an old person's thing. How do we begin to, in, in a health way or in a, in a healthy way and in a, in, a well, in a well way, begin to mend that divide um, in an empathetic and human, human way? Because like, like you said earlier, like, so yes, there is the, the doorstep visits that you, that you had. Um, and even now as it is like, okay, so people go back into the world, that doesn't mean everyone can right um and 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 that's because some people are more prone to certain things things like that um and i've, I've seen a lot of race stuff but i don't i don't want to get into that i want to mainly just generationally how how can we as millennials as, as you or if you were talking to me or someone in a place i'm open to the conversation right how can we be cognizant and and and, and human like you said in the midst of caring for our community by caring for our community if that makes sense yeah, and I would say a lot of this, you know, comes from you know this this compulsion with wanting to segment you know populations, right? Mm -hmm. Even this rhetoric about what generation, and now I can't even keep track. Like <laughs> dividing the younger generations, even further subdividing, right? And that's what it does. It it divides us, right? It segments us. It says, you know, and, and rather than saying, wait, we're part of a community. You know, we're wow. part of a family, right? Yeah. Which is the way we should be thinking about it, right? Because those pictures you're talking about, right? You can imagine what folks in my generation or older, mm -hmm. you know, thought when they saw those folks on those beaches, yeah. right? or you see folks coming back out of it in some states sooner than others. Mm -hmm. And despite all of the leaders that are talking about social distancing, you know, people are starting to crowd back in to locations again. Yeah. Well, yeah. that might be okay for younger folks who even if they get the virus, you know, have a really good chance of having it be mild or certainly not having it be life-threatening. Yeah. But they go back out and interact with other people, it becomes life-threatening for yeah. folks that have underlying conditions or are elderly. So instead yeah. of thinking about us as segmented slices of the population, yeah. why aren't we thinking about the family, the extended family, the so community, 
And by definition, thinking about that across generations and not allowing our identities you know, to become branded by marketers that are, that are trying to market products to us yeah. by labeling us a particular you know, slice of the population or generation. Yeah. You know, and you talk. You you know, we can talk uh, about you know racial differences, uh, which is another way to divide us. You know, huge disparities in our experiences, huge disparities in healthcare outcomes. If we talk about healthcare, mm-hmm. it's one of the saddest parts of this whole crisis. Is something a lot of us have known for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, talking about, but all of a sudden it seems like people are surprised when data comes out, you know, say that, you know, these segments of our population are bearing yeah. more of the brunt of what's happening with this. Yeah. Like, no kidding. Right? Yeah. Like, that was existing way before. Yeah. Maybe we'll actually pay attention to it now. Same thing is true on generational divides. So with that, I guess one of the things I'm looking to, so with all of that together, nonprofit management for me is going to shift. Um, I just think about just being in, being leading a church. Like I'm thinking about the future in terms of, like I recently finished reading this book I think about Kevin Kelly and it talked about the 12 technological forces that are going to shape our future. And it, it rested my mind to begin to think about trends. And I'm trying to think about the things that are going to be important and the things that aren't going to be important, right? So I know, for example, as a pastor, our congregation probably will not see our full force again for at least one to two years, right? Just because people that want to come back, people that won't, our church is growing. So people not want to be in a closed congested space with only like three exits, right? And so, and two bathrooms. So it's going to be different to even imagine church, but I'm also thinking about the spaces that are really going to matter and be enriched. And And I'm, I'm curious your thoughts too on the trends for nonprofit management because um, I feel like a lot of the care, the social movement, social justice, food justice, like I'm thinking about food deserts even, right? Like, so it's amazing what food is available for, on Grubhub in certain zip codes, right? Like we live in Central Falls and we're lucky that there's a Chipotle um, in Attleboro because if not, <laughs> you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have access to any of the, the good, the fresh stuff that's in the center of Providence. Um, and if we don't have a car or even the resources, we'd really be um, just out of, out of luck. So I'm curious your thoughts on like the trends for, because of social activism and civic engagement, social political engagement, what are trends you envision or might happen in nonprofit management and, and, and for the future? Well, I think leadership uh, completely shifts, whether you're a nonprofit uh, or you're running any organization. Um, and I think this crisis only uh, shines a big spotlight uh, on that. First of all, be still my heart. Uh, any reverend who uh, cites Kevin Kelly uh, <laughs> is okay in, in this innovation junkie's uh, book. I, I tell you. Um, yeah, no, it changes everything. I always talk about uh, leaders uh, at, less as managers and more as catalysts. Right, more as being in service of others and creating the conditions and environment, you know, for people and communities to be their best selves, right? And you know, you get me started on organized religion, whatever you know, religion we're talking about, right? And all the wonderful things that organized religion, if I could just unbundle it, yeah, and recombine the parts. Right, more in service of human flourishing for the individual, yeah. and less about the structure, the what I call the industrial error aspects of yeah. organized religion. Yeah. religion 
It's a church. It's a synagogue. A temple. Like it, yeah. It's a, you know, it's a community. It's yeah. a way to connect people. It's a way for to work on that isolation and loneliness that has bad healthcare outcomes. Yeah. It's a way to focus on the principles that if we really live them, mm-hmm. right, not only would we be healthier and our well-being would improve, but we would be in service of helping others and we'd be thinking more about the community yeah. and about ourselves and our generation, but everybody who lives in our community. And so I think leadership in that context takes on an entire new role. You, you've been working really hard on within the constraints. You were working on it before the crisis mm-hmm. to use technology, right, you know, to enable human and to enable humanity, right? Yeah. So that gave you a head start when this crisis happened, right? Yeah. I watch a lot of the things you're doing. Yeah congregation, but in the absence of being able to convene in the physical place, the church, Mm -hmm. right? I don't think you've missed a beat in terms of looking for ways to create that connectivity, to keep people engaged, to keep conversations moving, to keep people helping themselves, their families, you know, and their community. And so I think that's the biggest change that's going to happen, right? A lot of the uh, models that we lived and worked in, whether it's religion or any industry you work in, it could be healthcare, you know, healthcare takes place in a doctor's office, in a hospital. Mm -hmm. Government takes place, you know, in the, in the, in the state house, right? No, it doesn't. It takes place in the community. Right. takes place in the community and how do we as leaders act as the catalysts that create the conditions for what I would call more organic engagement, right, and connecting people in community that yeah. become a lot more purposeful. Wow. Yeah, that's, um, wow, that gives me a lot to think about. And I, I know this will be a blessing to because we have some amazing leaders in our, our congregation um, and, and even like when we, the people that listen to our podcast that um, that are really great people that are great leaders. And I think just the, I think what I, I guess I'm challenged by, I'm so a lot of things in my head. I have a lot of questions because I'm like, I'm writing my dissertation currently on gamification and gamifying the local church and this whole notion of human focused design. Um, and I'm curious, I'm, it's shifted. Like I literally, before the COVID, I had a certain picture of what human focused church look like. Right. Um, and so now after this happened, I'm like human focused, like what is designing in gamifying a church um, and gamifying just spaces really look like in terms of human focus design instead of like you said, like, um, like I guess bottom line design, right? I, I, I think confronting our own institutionalized sin um, in spaces that are supposed to be, you know, all of that, I think it's very interesting. Um, so thank you so much for this. I think this, this is so helpful for me and um, I know it'll be helpful for our congregation and to all our podcast listeners too. I think it'd be really great and um, thankful. Um, if you can share just a little bit um, my wife tells me about it, but I want to, I guess for us to get, kind of get out there, because I know you guys have, BIF has been to the church before. And if you could just share with us a little bit about like, what is BIF and what was your motivation? What, I guess what motivates you to continue this? I, I think for me, what is a great organization? Um, what is it and what is the, the kind of the core motivation behind continuing to push the, the innovating of, of that, that you guys do at BIF? Well, thank you. I mean, I'll, I'll just give you the short version of it. I mean, BIF is a nonprofit yeah. uh, that, that is trying to help uh, leaders to make transformations easier to manage. Uh, and we 
mean by that is it's human nature. Everybody says they're innovation. You know, they're about innovation. I always say everyone loves innovation until it affects them. And then it's too much. Right. And so uh, we focus on not just small incremental change. Like this is the way the church works today. How do we tweak, make it a little better? You should do that. I mean, make it better every day. But we focus on what would it look like if you transformed it? What would it look like if you designed it from the congregant and their experience and their pain point, what they're trying to do? And then without constraints, right, determine what does it take for you to add value, to catalyze, you know, that, you know, that individual, the family, you know, that community, and can you allow yourself the freedom to imagine a different way of it working, and can you do lots of small experiments, right, so we're very big on, like, coming up with a concept, not overthinking it, right, trying to design it quickly, like I always talk about napkin sketches to design yeah. something new. We don't need to study something, you know, for a year. Like we yeah. don't need to analyze something forever before we act, yeah. right? We can come up with a different way it might work. And then can we actually render it in the real world at a small yeah. scale? And we try it. Like the technical term for it is try more stuff, right? Yeah. And so that's what we do. And we've done that work in education, in public service, uh, and in healthcare. And right now, uh, we're working specifically in healthcare, within maternal health, you know, trying to shape a transformational approach to put well-being more in the center and to put the woman more in the center of her own pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And Courtney is playing the role of the well-being coach. And it's amazing what yeah. she's brought. To, to this party and every day we get to work with pregnant women in our community that I don't need to tell you how frightened they are right now you know, given the COVID crisis. So it's a blessing you know, to do this work and it's making a real difference in people's lives. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit uh, about our work. It's the same idea that we talked about in the context of organized religion. How do you how do you shift, see it through the lens of a human that you're trying to support or help? Yeah. How do you design a different way, you know, to change that experience for the better? And then how do you render it in the real world so that you can start to, to help more people? See, I love that. And I could talk all the, I could ask you so many questions because like, <laughs> like for me, but I, I'll save it for another day because I guess like it's amazing. I remember when I was interviewing at um, not this church, but other churches. And the first thing was like, we got to be like transformers. We got to innovate. But that just means like adding a social media page, right? And it's so much beyond an app and social media. There's, like you said, human focused, intentional work that comes with knowing folks' hearts and minds. And, and um, like even when I pitched my dissertation to my professors, um, they, they, were, they couldn't believe that we're talking about a church that's not going to, you know, be looking at a bottom line immediately, <laughs> immediately, but about, like you said, human focused work. And that's, um, it's amazing. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, so, um, I'm going to, I'm going to end the recording in a second. Um, so everyone, thank you guys for listening in. Um, Saul, if we wanted to get in contact with you or find you on like Twitter or all those different types of things, how can we find you? I'm very easy to find. I leave a lot of digital crumbs on Twitter. SK five. Uh, and uh, it's not hard. It's not hard to find me. And I lo- I thrive uh, on 
reactions, good, bad, you know, everything that helps me to learn faster and to try more stuff is always helpful. Awesome. Well, thank you. I'm going to just end this recording. This has been Made for Mondays with Justin Lester. Be sure to follow Justin online at Mr. Underscore J Lester and online at www.jlester.com. See you next week. Go win. You were made for this.